Matthew, as anglers, we have questions when we begin chasing any species of fish. Sometimes when we have a lot of extra time prior to going fishing, uh, we either buy or tie flies. The Mobile Basin Slam is about catching red-eye bass, not the rock bass type that's an entirely different species. And we'll discuss the characteristics of the species a little bit later. When we make our decision to chase the Mobile Slam and the red-eye bass, a lot of times our first question might be, what type of flies should we use? Yeah, so, um, you know, typically just like with most types of fly fishing, you know, anytime you're looking at fly selection, you want to you want to know a little bit about what the actual fish eats normally in a natural setting. So um, it's really no different with red-eye bass. The good thing is they eat everything, so that makes it a little easier. But as far as scientifically, we don't know a lot about what they what they eat other than they really do have a wide range of things that they eat. Like most bass, they're opportunistic predators. And so they, they can't really afford to turn down meals. So if they can get it in their mouth, they will eat it. However, there has been a few studies that have kind of shown this preference geared towards adult terrestrial and aquatic insects. And so that preference for insects that might be found on the water surface. So, you know, your mayflies are very common on a lot of these streams. A lot of hoppers get blown in, you know, stream side, all the typical things that you're, you know, experiencing when you're trout fishing. And so these, these fish are already keyed into the water surface. So they're, they're already looking up, especially spring and summer when, when these hatches are really going off. And so any kind of fly that's on top of the water, is, is really going to be effective. So poppers, extremely effective, just like you fish for smallmouth bass. The one difference I've noticed is on these streams, fishing the fly at dead drifted as opposed to popped aggressively tends to result in more strikes. So just something to keep in mind if you fish a popper. Same goes with hoppers. Anything on the surface, dead drifting is, is kind of the key. But these fish also eat a lot of crayfish. That's probably the largest portion of their diet outside of those adult terrestrial and aquatic insects we talked about. So crayfish patterns work really well. You know, typically I like a size six or eight fly. I like a size eight when I'm fishing a popper, which is primarily all I fish because it's it's big enough that you're not going to, you know, deal with the pesky panfish constantly. But it's it's small enough that a smaller bass can, you know, have no issues, you know, consuming the fly and getting the proper hookup. So that's that's the biggest, you know, the biggest thing. Colors, you know, I have some buddies that guide on the Tallapoosa River here and they swear by white. Mm, that's different. We always have this joke because, you know, they use white poppers. I use chartreuse or yellow poppers. And there's always this battle of which one of us is really correct. And I catch just as much fish as they do. I think it just, like most things, comes down to what you have confidence in. Again, these if these fish are looking at the fly and, you know, I'm not going to eat that because it's not the right color, then you don't want that fish anyway. There's plenty more that are going to just inhale whatever, you know, hits the water surface. So, so yeah, that's that's kind of what I would recommend as far as flies. So, it sounds like, other than the popper situation, it sounds like... Probably is the fly choice is close to trout, maybe mountain trout, something like that, maybe a little bigger mm -hmm. uh, on top. Dead drifting. That's interesting. This that the the dead drift is your 
your uh, pr- presentation of, of choice because you would think that moving that popper, I mean, a popper is supposed to pop, right? Right. You know, and you can skitter a, a terrestrial and, and they'll eat that too, but they're more into just a dead drift of nothing moving. Maybe they are not going to expend much energy to go get something to eat, which is yeah, kind of counterintuitive. Right. I think that's it. I mean, that you know, it's not to say that you won't catch them popping it, but I would say by and large, you know, on average, you're going to catch more dead drifting and, and bigger fish. And that's one thing I've noticed. And kind of like you, I would think, okay, you know, if an insect falls in the water, it's probably going to be moving, you know, rather than, than dead drifting, unless it's already dead. But, you know, these fish, I think sometimes the water's pretty shallow. And so any kind of aggressive popping, it just, it, it almost spooks the fish as opposed to, you know, them kind of in feeding mode, ready to strike like they would be for something just drifting across. So while the popper does make noise and live insects on the water do move, I, I don't think the insects are making the kind of noise you can make with some of these poppers. I mean, they're, some of them, I mean, they're designed to make these crazy, you know, just chug, chug water as they're moving. So but yeah, dead drifting. And I've got buddies that, you know, get funny with it and they'll, you know, throw a thunderhead or a, you know, parachute atoms or whatever and, you know, size 10, something like that. And and they've caught red eye on those. So I, I don't think that, you know, similar to brook trout, I don't think fly selection is as important as presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you say Thunderhead, that's right up my alley. That makes me go to come down there and, yeah. <laughs> and try these things out because that's one of my probably my favorite Smoky Mountain fly. Oh, uh, yeah. Dry fly for sure. Oh, yeah. And I use a number 10 too, that because I can't, you know, mm-hmm. I can't really see all that great. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can look away and, and wander around and come back and at least find one of those unless something's already eaten it. So, yeah. Well, let's let's kick this thing off from high atop the world headquarters of Southeastern Fly. This is the Southeastern Fly podcast. Feel free to share the episode with your friends and your fishing partners. Click the follow button so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. If you find value in the podcast and what we do and want to give back, drop by the Southeastern Fly store and simply make a purchase. So who is our guest today on Southeastern Fly? He's a fly angler. He's author of the book, Fly Fishing for Red-Eye Bass, and Venture Across Southern Waters. He is the National Vice Chair for the Native Fish Coalition. He has a PhD in microbial genetics from Auburn University. Please welcome to the podcast, Matthew Lewis. Matthew, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I've seen you on some other, or heard you on some other podcasts in, in the the information is uh, has been very good, and we're going to take a little bit, maybe a little bit different view of it here. But uh, so to tell you how this came about, and I, I don't remember if I told you this or not, but a friend of mine, uh, I conned him into buying a new boat, and we met in Chattanooga. We, we we left here from Murfreesboro. We met met the guy in Chattanooga, and he was from Atlanta, and he was he said, "I'm listening to the podcast. You know, I've, I've listened to the some of the some of the episodes, maybe not all of them." And you need to talk to Matthew. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Well, what do I need to talk to Matthew about? And he said, you need to talk to him about red-eye bass. And I was like, oh, yeah, red-eye. I love fishing for red-eye. And he said, no, 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 no. It's not red-eye like you're thinking, like you fish for. 
his name's Trevor. And Trevor was like, yeah, I, I know where you fish because he's fished with me before. And he said, uh, it's not exactly what you're thinking. So I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, it's a whole different species. I said, okay. He said, and he talked about this, this, this slam a little bit, which I didn't catch the name at first, but I, I did hear him say slam, which gets your attention. You know, anytime mm-hmm. we can go for a slam, we're going to do that. Uh, kind of a feather in our cap, if you will. Right. So, uh, anyway, we talked on for, I don't know, as we loaded the boat up, it was, uh, it's a fly craft. So it was, uh, we, we were changing it from one truck to the other. So we talked about, about the red eye bass for, I don't know, five, five, 10 minutes, something like that. And I thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to contact Matthew, just see what he says. And the more I, the more that I got into it, the more I realized, wait a minute, I've heard about this somewhere before. Mm-hmm. So a little bit, I'm a little bit probably, uh, versed in it maybe a little bit more from some of the things that i've listened to and now i've done some research on it since you and i talked a couple weeks ago i thought i'm gonna start doing a little research i'm not saying that i'm i'm a professional at it by any means whatsoever (laughs) but i I, i've been through some of the places that you fish uh traveling back and forth to florida we kind of take some super back roads from time to time just to kind of kill some time and some and I've looked at some of that water and thought, boy, that'd be really good water right there, you know. Yeah. And that's some of the lower elevation streams uh in Alabama. The fact that 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 we're chasing something or you're chasing something in Alabama at elevation that is a bass but eats like a trout is very mm-hmm. intriguing to us. Right. So and you know, there are many, many different types of slams in, in fly fishing and we're going to specifically talk about this Mobile Basin Slam. This this slam that we're going to talk about is all about the red-eye bass. Can you kind of give us your thoughts or tell us the thoughts behind the slam itself? Yeah, so, um, you know, back when I released my book in 2018, um, at the same time I had been talking with a, a guy who also lived in Birmingham uh, at the time I lived there, and um, we were talking about, how do we grow an appreciation, you know, for this fish without obviously, you know, just spot burning it and and creating too much pressure, but how do we, how do we come up with like a mindful approach to fishing for this fish, but also understanding the importance of the niche where it lives, the waters that it lives in, maybe some of the, you know, factors that are, affecting those waters negatively, whether it's habitat loss or, you know, pollution, sedimentation, whatever, you know, there's a huge list of possibilities. And we were actually, we went to lunch and we were just kind of talking about how much we love this type of fishing and what we could do. And so we had this idea and it's very much based on, you know, some of the cutthroat trout slams out West, where if you, you catch all of these species of red eye bass in one calendar year, then the idea was to give you some sort of, you know, certificate or something to kind of commemorate that achievement. Um, and <clears throat> we had a friend, Henry Hershey, who's also a, a fisheries biologist here at Auburn that is a, a really good artist. And so we kind of, talked him into designing the first certificate. And so he, he did a hand drawn, hand painted certificate uh, for these. And then uh, as we've grown, you know, we've, you know, now moved on to a different artist just to kind of change it up a little bit with Mary Beth Meeks and she does a great job, but 
So the idea was to get people out fishing for these fish. And if, if they did that, then hopefully they would be better, you know, advocates for the waters where these fish live. And, you know, people only care about what they love and they can't love what they don't know. And so that was kind of our, our mantra going into this is like, well, let's show them, you know, let's show them the certificate, the slam. That's one way to get people jazzed and, you know, wanting to participate and, you know, they'll get the certificate if they do it, but more importantly, I think they'll really gain an appreciation for, for all these fish and all the different waters. So. So what made you really fall in love with, with this fish, this particular fish? So I had, I had been fly fishing for a while at this point. Um, and primarily, let's see when, when I first started fly fishing, I lived in Huntsville, Alabama, and I would spend most of my time driving to the Smoky Mountains and doing backcountry brook trout trips. And that's all I wanted to catch. I didn't want to catch rainbows or browns. I wanted to go high up for the native fish. And there's just something about it that was just so captivating to me. The the scenery, I mean, you and your listeners will, you know, know what I'm talking about. It's hard to put into words, but there's just something prideful about a fish that belongs there you know that that's evolved there it's it's your home fish and people kept telling me like you need to try red eye bass you know some of my buddies had been fishing for them for a while and i said yeah you know but there's no way they're going to compare to brook trout and you know i i happened to go and fish for them and was just blown away at the similarities between the two i mean you're talking just absolutely pristine, clear water, you know, mountain streams, waterfalls, you know, instead of rhododendron, you're typically surrounded by mountain laurel, but it mm-hmm. looks the same. Just the sheer beauty of that setting and then catching a fish that doesn't get very big, but just is just so beautiful and colored, lots of blues and reds and i mean just it doesn't look like a, a bass should look you know it's not what you would think of and so that that's i mean it's just, the aesthetics of it is really kind of what what drew me in and then it was more about just the the peace and the escape and you know i'm not fighting people you know for a section of stream or whatever i'm just anywhere i want to go i'm going to be by myself um, and there was just something really, really cool about that. So, so you weren't really fishing behind, you're not really fishing behind anybody. No, to speak of. no, no. I mean, some of these streams I've fished, I mean, it, I think it's, it's probably ignorant to say that I'm, I've fished waters that have never been fished, but I've fished waters that I, I promise you have not been fished in a long, long time. Right. They may have been walked over by hikers or you know hunters out roaming national forest land or whatever but i I guarantee you not many people if anyone has fished them in quite some time and it that i think that's that mystique is really intriguing too so yeah it's it's been a it's been a really cool ride and since i fished for red i haven't looked back i haven't uh, fish for trout since 2016, I think. Mm. 
Wow. And it's not because I, I don't like trout. I mean, I would certainly go do it. I just haven't had the pull, you know, yeah. strong enough to, to pull me away. If I have a weekend or, you know, a day or whatever, I want to go to a red eye stream. That's just, you know, how I enjoy spending my time. That and, and you're a little closer, but you know, that, that's definitely, that's got to have something to do with it. But it's interesting because you had, when you found the fish, you already had the skills, right? If you've been fishing right. in the Smokies for a while, you've got those, those skills of knowing how to dead drift a, a dry fly, maybe dry dropper. But another interesting thing that you had said there was not many people have fished for them. And you figure not many people have fished for them. And then you dwindle it down to not many people with a fly have fished for them. So you've got even a better chance to fool them, I guess, is, is, is one way to look at it. It is quite an adventure to find something like that. And, and you know, a little nugget, a little jewel uh, that, that not a lot of people even know about. So, you know, there's not a lot of info on these fish. That's one thing that I found. I mean, there's some, don't get me wrong. Uh, about where to find them or anything like that. And, and I'm not going to ask for specific GPS coordinates, although if you want to slip them my way after the show, that'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> talk talk to us about where we would focus when we're fishing for red-eye bass in the Mobile Slam. So red-eye bass are found in the um, the Coosa, the Tallapoosa, the Cahaba, and the Black Warrior rivers. And, uh, you know, eventually all these flow into the Mobile River Basin. That's why we call it the Mobile Basin Slam. The thing is, you're not typically going to find these fish in the lower reaches of these river systems. So, and oftentimes you're not going to find them in the, in the river themselves, period. You're going to have to go up into the tributaries, the higher elevation streams that, that feed these larger river systems. So, and Alabama has tens of thousands of miles of rivers and streams so it can be daunting, but if you can look at it that way, but you can also look at it as, wow, there's so many options I could probably get right, you know, just throwing a dart at a map. And, and you really can. If you fish the upper portion of of those four river systems, um, chances are you're, you're going to catch red-eye bass. So is that mostly in the northern part of Alabama, the northeast, the middle? Kind of I would west. say central to central to northeast. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, the Black Warriors kind of more Western, I guess. So, yeah, central to north. Okay. Um, all right. If, if we're covering all the, the river systems. And so the elevations, you know, it really does vary. I mean, I don't think, I don't know that this fish is necessarily, well, we don't know if this fish is necessarily tied to an elevation. You know, people say with brook trout, you know, you got to get above 3,000 feet or something like that. Yeah, right. And that's probably because the browns and rainbows have been stocked down below and you got to get above, you know, so it's, that's not natural. Um, with these fish, you know, there's there's not a lot of invasive species to deal with in Alabama. And so, you know, the elevations range from 400 to around 1,000 feet where you'll catch these and some maybe a little bit higher. Um, but that's typically where you find them. Once you get above that in Alabama, the water's so small that it's it's kind of darter and minnow water yeah. at that point. But that's kind of your sweet spot. And you know, you you overlook streams that are, you know, sedimented or murky or kind of slow frog water. These fish do not like that at all. Um, in fact, I don't think they can really survive in that type of water. So what you want to look for is what you would call trout water 
for, for, for the folks that are, you know, more familiar with trout fishing. So you're looking for that classic riffle run pool shoal complexes uh, within these river systems or stream systems. And that's usually going to be the smaller water. And so, you know, they're not going to be in the riffles as much, but you will catch them in the runs and certainly in the pools. I mean, I think the pools are kind of the, you know, really what you should, what you should target. And especially if there's some sort of uh, streamside vegetation that kind of provides cover over that pool and the pools adjacent to flow, whether it's a run or a waterfall or whatever, that's like, that's what you really want. I mean, that's what you're looking for. And it, I think it's multifactorial. So, I mean, you've got the cover from overhead predators like ospreys or, you know, whatever. Those streamside vegetation, you know, mountain laurel, things like that. I mean, insects use those and they, they fall in the water from those. So, um, it's a food source. I mean, there's just, there's so much there for them that make them feel safe that that's, that's typically where you can catch them. And so that's, I mean, you know, targeting those river systems, a lot of bedrock. So, so these fish have an association with rock. So you want to see bedrock outcroppings and boulders and cobblestone bottom, very clear water, moderate flow. Again, these are, these are fish that, you know, have some sort of requirement for flow and clean water. And so you're not going to find them in streams that are really sandy or silted. They're going to be in those, those really clear water streams. So high gradient. Right. So how, how wide is it generally, generally speaking, how wide is the, is the water that you, you like to fish? I'm different than most people because the, you know, Sometimes I like to just see how small of water I can catch them in. <laughs> right. And so I, I may go to the extreme. So um, I've caught them in streams that are four feet wide. And then I've, I've, you know, I would say routinely, I'd say 10, 10 feet is probably a good average, 10 feet wide. So about the length of a, or the width of a, a lane or a road, probably maybe a little right. bit less. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes both lanes, but it's, it's not that standardized because as you know, you know, there's waterfalls and there's, there's meanders in the stream and there's, you know, but in general, the amount of water that you're fishing is, is typically yeah about that, about okay. that size. So our bins, stuff like that still, are they in play as well? Yes. Like sharp bins. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it depends on the water. So, uh, some of the streams over in Georgia, because there's some native red eye bass, populations there in the um altamaha and chattahoochee some some of those what i've found there is there's there's a little bit less of the like just really large shoal complexes and waterfall plunge pool type things that that i fish here and there's some more of that just i mean the water looks deep um, but there's a lot of bedrock at the bend and that outer bend that's deeper is typically where the fish, are, you know, are going to hold, especially in the the cooler months. I've had to dredge a a woolly booger, you know, or some sort of weighted fly on those outside bends on some of those rivers in the cooler months to to get a strike, just because those fish are down there and they're kind of lethargic. But yeah, those are those are very much in play. Um, if you see those, it it would be wise to at least make a cast or two or drift through there. It really gets me the, the, the way that it mirrors brook trout, mm-hmm. you know, the, 
it's almost other than the popper thing and who's to say that we can't go in the smokies and fish a popper and catch you know catch brook trout too probably can yeah i, I kind of wanted it. to try it just to just to say i did it but you probably you probably could take your setup to the smokies and get up high uh where we know there's some brook trout and probably use it and be you know and catch just just about as many right but the thing is, nobody really does it, so we don't really. Yeah. Somebody listening out there is like, "Oh yeah, I've done it all the time." And David, <laughs> you should shut up because I don't That's want everybody my to know my secret, right? My but, secret fly, yeah, yeah. But you know, one of the other important considerations that I I should mention is that a lot of the water um, where red eye bass are found in Alabama is surrounded by private land. Yeah. So it's you know Alabama has the same stream laws as a lot of other states where if the stream is deemed navigable then as long as you're in the water whether you're standing on the bottom in the water or or in a boat whatever as long as you're in the water and not on the banks you're you're okay um you're on public land but you know the gray area is what's navigable and the state doesn't even really you know have a good definition um for that and nor do they have a complete list of you know, what are navigable waterways considered by the state. And so I've had run-ins with some landowners that, you know, I park at a bridge and, yes. you know, cause there's a certain right away on either side of a bridge that is state property. You can park there, get in the water. You've never set foot on private ground, but the landowner doesn't always see it that way. Right. Um, and so what I've tried to do and what I encourage other people to do is, you know, talk to them, Tell them what you're doing. Tell them about the fish, you know, why you're excited about it. And I've had, I've never had someone tell me, you know, well, I don't care. Get out of here. It's, they'll say, oh, I did I had no clue, you know, whatever. And I mean, it's a little bit easier for me. I always keep a book stashed in my truck so I can be like, well, here, here's a copy of my, you know, <laughs> and sometimes that, that helps a little yeah. bit. Um, but I, I, you know, I think just uh, be courteous you know, be, you know, be, you know, treat someone like you would want to be treated. And, you know, they're probably already kind of on guard because they don't know you and they think it's their land. So, you know, that's something you may encounter. Now, obviously if you're fishing, you know, national forest land or, you know, national park land or whatever, then you're, you're okay, but you you can run into those issues. So just be aware. Yeah. And, uh, like you say, treat treat them like you want to be treated, and treat them like, hey, this is your land, right? You yeah. know, don't argue with them because yeah, yeah, don't argue. It's not that will not work. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that will that, not work. That will not get you access. No, no, nor will it get the next guy access either. Mm-mm. So, you know, as new as this is to a lot of us, uh, we don't know what we don't know. So maybe some general information about the species might help get us going, especially those folks that live in Alabama that maybe, maybe they're on the fence about going and, and trying to, trying to catch these fish or, or get the slam. So what are some, what are some, you know, some general characteristics of the bat, red eye bass that might be helpful uh, to be aware of? We've talked a lot of, of, about a lot of this, but let's, let's try to drill down and get a little bit more specific. Yeah. So I mean, right off the bat, they're the smallest black bass. So these fish, I have seen very few reach 12 inches, and they they really max out around that size. Now, that's not to say there's going to be some that are 12 and three quarters or 13 inches, whatever, but by and large, 12 inches is kind of their max size. 
Typically what you're going to catch though, because I mean, that would be like catching a 25 inch largemouth. I mean, that, that's a, that's a trophy. Yeah. Typically what you're going to catch are, are going to be anywhere from eight to 10 inches. That's kind of the, you know, norm, I guess, depending on the stream you're fishing. Some streams, you know, you'd be a 10 inch fish would be a trophy, but these fish don't get very big. And that's just, you know, the way they are. Another reason they're like brook trout too. Um, yeah. And so one of the, a few of the characteristics that'll help you identify these and differentiate them from other bass when you catch them. So they have this little blue crescent on the back half of their upper eye. And so the, no other fish has that. And so if you see that, that's a good chance that, you know, you, you've got a red eye bass and also just the coloration of the fins, you know, those blues and reds, typically most other bass are kind of, you know, black or dark green, bronzy. Um, and these fish have a lot of color in their fins. And then if you look a, along the lateral line, so like a largemouth or spotted bass has kind of that, you know, almost solid line down their lateral line, that black line, these fish are going to be similar to smallmouth in a way where they're going to have kind of those broken blotches with spaces in between them, um, all the way to their tail fin. So, you know, it's not going to kind of coalesce as it nears the tail fin, it's going to be spaced evenly all the way down. And so those are a few ways to, to tell it apart, but the, you know, they, we've already talked about the type of water they prefer. So you're, you know, you're, you're they're going to, be in that type of water they're they're a specialist so they have a very specific habitat that they require and they're just they're super aggressive fish i mean that's part of the fun is dead drifting a popper through this you know slow pool and then just just eruption you know <laughs> underneath and you're like wow did that you know eight inch fish make that that kind of splash what's right. going on here but yeah that i mean in general that's, you know, a little bit about this, the species. We, there's a lot we don't know about them, I mean, to be honest with you. Um, you know, life history type characteristics. I mean, we, we know that they spawn in the spring. And we, we know that there's some evidence that they make some sort of migration when they spawn. But, we, you know, the, the only studies that have been done on that have been done on like one species in one river. And so is it just that species or do all of them do that? And so that's a lot of work that we still need to do and are wanting to do let's talk about that migration just a second so how far is this migration you're talking about in the in the one species you know is it we don't know so where they where they did the study that um where they radio tagged fish and, and kind of followed them was on the Tallapoosa river uh -huh. and obviously the Tallapoosa river has um you know a series of hydroelectric dams that have kind of fragmented that river that fish can't you know necessarily go from one to the other yeah. Um, and so, you know, what they found is they, they migrated relatively far. Some of them did, but some of them didn't. So what does oh. that mean? Oh. You know, did, oh. did one get eaten by a bird and, you know, oh. move downstream that way or what have you? But when they put a radio tag on, how does that work? Tell us how that works. Cause I don't, I haven't done any of that. I'm not aware of how any of that works. Well, oh, so well, typically, I think it's really what, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, what they usually do is, I mean, so this is the hard part about working with fish this small. The technology hasn't really caught up to what we need it to be. So, you know, you have to implant like a a pill, like a very large pill size device in the fish. You have to do surgery, cut them open, put 
put that in, sew them back up. You're going to have some mortality just from the invasiveness of the surgery. Right. But that, that thing only goes so small with our current technology. And, and, you know, that's fine for large mouth and spotted bass and things like that. But when you've got a, you know, six to eight inch fish, it's really hard to place this thing. That's like, you know, a fifth of their body size in them yeah. um, and have them, you know, do what they normally do. And so anyway, you put that in the fish and that uh, emits a, a signal that can be picked up by uh, devices that, you know, you stand on the bank or whatever you kind of, you ping their location tells you where they are. And so you have to physically drive out there, locate the fish, whether it's driving down the river in a boat until you, 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 you know, capture that signal or walk in the bank or, you know, whatever the, the situation determines. I, I hope that one day we have something like a GPS tag that's small enough because the reason these are, are large is battery life. So you're limited uh-huh. by battery life. And right now you get about three to six months maybe with the current battery power that we have. And so, you know, you're not getting the whole season, you know, you're not seeing what they do throughout every season unless you recapture that fish again. And anyway, it's just, it, it's not really um, practical or efficient right now to do those kind of studies with fish this small. It can be done. And there are some groups, Clemson is doing some really cool work over on the Savannah river system with red eye bass there that are called Barchman's bass. And so I'm interested to see what they find from some of their studies, but, but this is another reason why it's, you know, I'm really excited that I get to work in this field because I mean, we're essentially on the frontier of this species um, or group of species. And so it's cool to, you know, know all the things that we need to do, but it's also frustrating because there's so much we don't know. Well, you, you, you probably won't solve every piece of the puzzle. I mean, it's no. going to have to probably be carried on long after, long after this right. podcast is over. Hopefully, I can with. lay some foundation and yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. lay some framework and foundation for someone else. Yeah, right. So, any any of the younger folks that are maybe thinking about going to Auburn and like to fish, then you know, maybe Absolutely. they maybe somebody else can pick it up for us. You know, my favorite my favorite part of this project was uh, what I like to call "quote unquote" the sampling. You know, most of my sampling was done via hook and line. And many projects do require that because sometimes it's the most effective way to, to capture fish, uh, depending on what questions you're trying to, you know, ask. And so I always joked with my buddies is, you know, I tell my wife, well, I'm going sampling today. And that literally meant I'm just going fishing, but it sounded right. better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can. I use that same thing. I'm, I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to test <laughs> test some new flies, grab right. some flies, and see what happens. So. Product testing. Yeah, neither one of them buys that. By the way, just in case you're wondering. Oh no no no, no yeah they, totally she, not. She eventually caught on because when I started going sampling on you know Saturdays and other days that weren't yeah. work days, she exactly. She, I think she kind of caught on that I was up to something else. <laughs> What about tackle? What about rod sizes and that sort of thing? Maybe leaders. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is all relative because people have their preferences, but for me, 
and, and what I think is most effective on these streams, and I'm talking about small streams. I like a three to four weight rod. Prefer three, but four is okay. I like a seven six, but you know if you've got an eight foot rod or a nine foot rod, like I, it, that's fine. Just some of the hiking and situations that you find yourself in inevitably on these streams, a shorter rod's a lot easier to navigate through some of these um, mazes of vegetation and things like that. And honestly, I, I haven't ever had any limitations with, you know, you don't have to cast extremely far. And so you can do everything you need to do with a seven, six, three weight rod. I also, I like to use like a, a bass bug line. Um, so, you know, scientific anglers, some other folks make lines that are, you know, heavily weighted on the front end right. to give you that kind of short load and, and, and a quick punch that you need for throwing larger flies like a popper that's more wind resistant. So I, I like to use a, a line like that. Something that'll turn that fly over because a popper right. on a three weight is probably, you know, not, it's not like casting a dry fly by any means. You got to have something with a little bit of power and you take that power away on a three weight. So you try to add something back with the line. Right. That's a, that's a good and that's another reason why choice. I like the size eight popper too, because it's a little bit smaller. Yeah. Um, and not quite as wind resistant. So it works really well with this setup. And then I like a five foot leader. Um, I use a furled leader. I know there's yeah. kind of two um, schools of thought. There's furled leaders and there's tapered leaders. I've always just been a fan of the furled leader because whether I'm trout fishing or whatever, just because I like the ease of just, you know, having a tippet ring on one end that I can just tie a new piece of tippet on instead of having yeah. a blood knot you know, a new section on or something like that. Uh, plus I absolutely hate time blood knot. So, so I, I like a five foot leader. I like furled leaders because they, they help transfer that energy from the fly line to your, you know, help turn over that big fly a little bit better. I think than a tapered leader does. I think sometimes people see a furled leader and they're like, man, that, isn't that going to spook the fish? And I'm like, look at your fly line. It's chartreuse and, you know, a lot bigger you know, your tippet's what's important there. And so uh, for my tippet, I, I feel weird even calling it tippet because I just buy a uh, small spool of like strand or whatever, eight pound monofilament mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. And I will use that as my tippet because a lot of times, you know, you're going to get hung in trees and things like that. And sometimes you don't want to have to get, you know, go over there and unhook your fly if you can just kind of snatch it loose and, and keep fishing. And so I've found that, you know, without breaking my line, I can, I can do that. Plus you're fishing in some pretty abrasive um, conditions with all the bedrock and things like that. So as the, as you catch fish and fight fish or cast and hit the rocks and things, your line's going to get a little bit worn. And I think the eight pound line really kind of stands up to some of that torture Yep, and, and make sure you don't lose a fish. That's uh, I was fishing somewhere just the other day and about the last, foot of my tippet was it felt like somebody took a cheese grater to it mm -hmm. and i had been i'd pulled a couple of fish off some sharp rocks you know out, out from underneath a couple of sharp sharp rocks like bedrock like you're talking about and thankfully um, I, I caught it you know i was like oh wait a minute this this doesn't it wasn't looking exactly right you know and i, I looked yeah at it, okay it's time to time to put new tippet on there but you're right i mean if it's abrasive especially with with um, lots of 
stream tied vegetation stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. just because you can pull it out of a veg- out of the vegetation doesn't mean that it it's not hurt in some way, right? So, yep. Yeah. And and I will add that if um so like the Tallapoosa River, I mean that's that's kind of one of the exceptions I think in the red eye world in Alabama because it's a fairly large river, and you can actually catch red eye for a good portion of that river in the main river system. Oh. So where the Horseshoe Bend National Military Park is, you know, downstream of there, you can actually get get into Red Eye just out in the middle. I mean, because there's just these massive shoal complexes that that span the entire river. And, you know, Red Eye are just all in that, you know, in the crevices and channels and things like that. And so when I'm in that kind of environment, because you can also catch striper, oh, you can nice. also catch big Alabama bass. Yeah, you know, big panfish. So in those cases, I I prefer to use a five or six weight rod and upsize my popper maybe to a number six or something like that. Also, it's a good place to throw streamers. Um, there's some big water there where you can you can really you know strip some streamers and and catch a lot bigger bigger fish. And so uh, that's the only time I don't like using the really you know th- small three weight rod seven yeah. and a half foot. In those cases, I'll use a five or six weight nine foot rod. So there's more to it than just I'm going up into the mountain, up the up the mountain a little bit. It, there's more to that story now that you're down on that lower water. You're actually right. saying, okay, I can I can catch some of those, but I have a chance to catch it something that's much bigger. Yeah, I, and, I can and, tell you this: it ain't no prettier. It might be bigger, but it ain't no prettier than red. No, no, absolutely not. And, and honestly, just um, just recently, I've had some friends that have have been out there on the Tallapoosa and, and actually caught striped bass on um, you know six weights or seven weights because that's what they're fishing with. And, and you know that's still a uh, I don't, that's still an undersized rod for yeah, you know, it is those fish. Yeah, sure is. You can do it, but also you don't want to fish with a nine weight or a ten weight for, you know, red eye and panfish and spotted bass. So it, you know, you, you got to give somewhere, and and the the vast majority of people are mostly going to catch the actual black bass species like spotted bass and uh, red eye bass. So yeah. So already, I don't know. It's been about an hour, probably close to forty five minutes anyway, and we've talked, we've covered a lot of things, but. What's the one thing that we haven't asked about fly fishing for the Mobile Basin Slam that we should have asked? How long it takes to to do it is is one consideration. So, you know, we've had folks that have done it in a day, and and that's I'll go ahead and tell you it's a logistical nightmare and it's kind of stressful. <laughs> so you would, I would, you would probably prefer to not do that unless you just are adamant about you know achieving that feat. But you can, I mean, realistically, you can come to Alabama and and spend a night in a hotel and catch all four species in a weekend easy. You know, you got to do your research. Uh, you got to kind of know where you're going to go. But it's it's certainly it's certainly doable. And I and, and one of the things I think is really important is that you know, in a world where we have so many what I call artificial fisheries, where we we stock fish that don't belong in places where they don't belong. It's it's really refreshing to have something still so wild and special that's never really been tampered with. In many cases, it's still completely unknown. 
and it's, it's something that we have here in the South that's, you know, we can really kind of get behind and champion as, you know, kind of our own little, you know, gym that, that we have. And it's like, you don't want everybody to know about it, but at the same time, if nobody knows about it, there's, you know, th- that's how things go extinct and, and, and go by the wayside. So, you know, I think it's just cool that, you know, the West has their cutthroat trout slams, but, you know, we've got something pretty special here in the South that we can, we can chase too. And red eye bass really just, I mean, for a fly angler, you know, that's after adventure and, um, you know, variability and conditions and water, you know, types they can pursue this fish. I mean, it, it really kind of checks all the boxes. So it's, it's a really cool fish to, to put on your bucket list. So you talked about there, there are four species of red eye bass. Mm-hmm. Is what you were just talking about. So if I was going to go after the slam, how far would I have to travel uh, from the first species? And let's start me living in Tennessee. So I'm traveling down, I guess, 65 uh, a little ways. Tell me, right. tell me what I have to do to get to the first stop. So if you're coming, like for you, you're coming down 65 south of Huntsville is where you're going to start encountering, you know, some of those upper reaches of the Black Warrior River system. Then as you get on into Birmingham, you're going to be, you know, in the Cahaba River system and also on the fringes of the Coosa River system. So you can notch those to fairly close proximity to Birmingham. And then for the Tallapoosa, you know, you've got to kind of head east towards um auburn yeah to to notch those and and it's you know we've been talking about the mobile basin red eye slam so there's those four species in alabama but there's another one described species and two proposed species in georgia and south carolina as well so there's really seven species of red eye bass so we we had a version of the slam where people could do all seven in the calendar year, or oh, they could wow. do just the four in Alabama for the Mobile Basin. And so, you know, there's no way you're going to do all seven in one day. I don't, you'd have to have yeah. a helicopter or something, you know, to to make now, that work. But now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> now the now bar has been raised. That's yeah. right. <laughs> But yeah, I, but I don't. I don't think I would want to chase them all. And I understand why people do, do it. So don't write me an don't write me an email or anything out there. <laughs> I think I would rather say, all right, this time I'm going for, to this this watershed, catch them, and maybe spend a day or two or whatever, and get to know it a little bit and enjoy it instead of, you know, kind of that. You get on that fort. So in the Smokies, same thing. I want to catch a brookie. A brown and rainbow all in the same day it just becomes a forced march is really what it becomes and there's a lot of luck involved right uh, you have to do a lot of research and i don't know that you really in, i don't enjoy that as much as i do up all right let's let's go let's fish it right. for a while let's catch some let's hang around you know maybe let's let's sit around and break out a flask and you know enjoy ourselves a little bit and then right catch a few more and then go grab a burger somewhere and Maybe right. maybe come back there that day, or maybe go back, go down to another one, or heck, maybe even come home. You know, yeah. Because in the end, if you, I mean, you do that all in one day, and you you run yourself ragged, and you're like, well, what did I just actually accomplish? You know, I, 
Yeah. I rushed through all those experiences. I didn't really stop and smell the roses anywhere and just enjoy being anywhere. It was, you know, you gotta be mindset onto the next place. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, you know, I think that's like, if I were to get philosophical, I'm just going to say like, that's, I think that's the real draw to red eye bass fishing is it's, it's something that, that we own in the South. It's, it's yeah. ours. Um, it's, it's native. It's wild. It's, it's, it's really is an adventure fishing for these fish. I mean, you're going to be, you know, climbing waterfalls and hacking through, you know, poison ivy and, and all <laughs> sorts of stuff to get to these waters. I mean, it, it really is a lot of fun because you're, you're stepping out into the unknown. I mean, you're, a lot of times there's not trails. Um, you kind of have to make your own trail. And again, people that fish for brook trout, I mean, they're, they're like, Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> about because, that, because that's what that is too. Yes. Um, now certainly there's places where you can, but, um, if I were to give a fishing tip though, um, back to your, your question, w- one of the things we haven't talked about that again is, is, you know, pretty parallel with brook trout fishing is, is stealth. Um, so these waters, because they're so clear, these fish can see, can see really well, you know, in their surroundings. And so I typically prefer uh, to fish upstream because yeah. the fish are usually going to be facing into the current. And so you're kind of behind them. Um, so they don't really see you coming. And then also, you know, use some of the big bedrock boulders and, and streamside cover to your advantage. I mean, don't just stand right out in the middle of the stream and walk right up to the pool you want to fish and start slapping your fly line on it. I mean, you're going to have to kind of have some sort of thoughtful approach to, you know, plan out your attack, so to speak. Um, and that's part of what makes it fun, too, is it's a little bit like guerrilla warfare where you're you're really kind of planning out your next move. And then, I, you know, I just I have to mention because we are talking about the slam here, we have a film coming out in the um, international fly fishing film festival this year. So the IF4 films. Yeah. So this is different than the F3T. This is the IF4. It's called a slam that saves. And it, it's a, it's a film about, you know, the red eye bass slam oh. um, in the, the mobile basin. And so all, you know, all over the country where that, those videos are shown as well as um internationally um red eye bass will be be on the center stage so it's kind of cool that is cool so were you in that film yeah so it was um a film that was shot by my friends um dorsal outdoors it's a local birmingham film group that just does amazing cinematography you know uh filming of fly fishing um and they've had multiple films and the f3t and the if4 film tours just just really talented guys but you know just just fishing with them was a a real joy because they're they're just cool people and um they get it you know they're from alabama they understand like why this is cool and important and so the film was shot by them and it centered around myself and then Mary Beth Meeks, the artist I was telling you about yeah, earlier yeah. that's doing the slam certificates now. So it's, it's around us doing the slam in a day. And, but obviously, you know, talking a lot about red eye bass and yeah. why they're important and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a really well done film and 
I wish it could be longer because there's so much stuff that had to get cut out to make that like 10 minute, you know, yeah. uh, time limit. But it, it it's a really cool film. So if you're, you can go to the, you know, IF4 International Film Festival or Fly Fishing Film Festival website, find out where the different shows are. Um, anywhere there's a fly fishing show. So like the one in Atlanta in February, they do a showing. So you can buy tickets to go oh. to that one. And we'll be at that one. So all <laughs> of us that, shot the film and are in the film will be at the Atlanta show as well. Okay. So yeah, if you, you know, if you, if you uh, want to see more, that's one place you can, you can see it. Okay. That's, see, that's good information right there. Very good information. Anytime you can learn something about a new species like that, and then going after a mobile uh, after a slam or something of that nature, it's always, it adds just a little bit to it, you know, a little bit to the experience, but just, you know, you're talking about whacking through bushes and stuff like that. I, I climbed up out of a river in the Smokies one time. Well, I climbed up about a bunch of rivers out of the Smokies, but one time in particular, to try to get uh-huh. out of a wave of a, of a storm that dumped about three inches of rain and felt like about 30 minutes. And the whole river started rising. It was one of those situations where you can't, yeah. get, <laughs> can't get back the way that you, that you came right. in. So, yeah, I'm... Me and a friend of mine whacked a, whacked our way up the side of a mountain basically to get to what we thought was going to be a trail, and thankfully it was. But so those things are, you know, and I'm here. I am twenty years later or more, still talking about that. And I don't, you know, I don't talk much about. Well, I went down to the river and fished for three hours and came back home. It wasn't anything like that. It was a true adventure, whether we yes. liked it or not. <laughs> and and the, honestly, I mean, that's. I, and I, I'm dead serious when I say this. People always like are like, no, you can't be serious. But if someone were to tell me, you know, hey, you've got two weeks, all expense paid, you can do whatever you want. Your wife's not going to be mad. You know, she's going to watch the kids. You can go anywhere in the world you want for those two weeks and fly fish. I really would spend it in the southeast fishing these yeah. different red eye waters. Good for you. Just, just drive, driving around camping because. I mean, I just, I, I love it. I can never get enough of it. And there's so many waters. There's never enough time. Yeah. Um, especially if you get over, you know, into South Carolina, uh, like the Chattooga and some of those rivers that are, you know, more widely known as trout streams. But it's like, you know, those are the non-native fish that have been dumped in there. The native fish that live there, are the, the red-eye bass, and you can catch those downstream when it gets a little bit too warm for the, the trout. And the many trout. people do. But it's always funny because you're fishing those stream. I mean, it's just such a scenic, beautiful river. Yeah. And then you're fishing and all these whitewater rafts are, you know, constantly coming by and they're like pointing out, there's a 18 inch brown over there by that rock. And I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> that's not what I'm looking for. Um, or they're just like amazed that anybody's fishing at all in that yeah. river because, you know, obviously it's a whitewater river. It's devoid of fish. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, but I mean, it's just, there's just, I have a lot of pride in the South. And I, I think that we have a lot of really beautiful, cool places that oh, yeah. I think we just take for granted. And, and in some cases, we just don't know about. And so I'm hoping that you know, fly fishing for red-eye bass is kind of a a window into that world for, for some people. Well, it certainly was we, for me. So. That's what we've kind of tried to focus on here is, 
And I think probably during the pandemic is whenever it really came about of people wanting to start to look around home a little closer because you didn't want to get on an airplane. You know, Mm -hmm. everything was a big hassle and there was a, there's a little bit of fear of danger in there as well. And, and, oh, yeah. uh, and, and we've really tried to focus on what exactly is going on down here. You know, what, what do we have? We know we've got the Smokies and those are fantastic, but there's a lot of other things. There's, you know, there's a, a whole lot of miles of coastline that you could fish for salt water and anything from, you know, red, red fish to tarpon to, you know, you mm-hmm. name it. And then you get on the interior, there's a shoal bass, red-eye bass, there's mm-hmm. brook trout, rainbow trout, brown trout, largemouth, smallmouth. You know, I can go on and on. Alabama bass, striper, stripe, uh, white the shoal bass. bass. Have you fished for shoal bass? I have not yet. I oh, haven't yet. Man. I mean, like, that's my second favorite fish because they're so much like red-eye, they just get a lot bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, they used to be in Alabama. They've been completely extirpated from Alabama due to, you know, habitat loss and things like that. And so that that was part of the reason that, like, no one knew about that fish. I mean, it's just not as popular as largemouth and Alabama bass and things. And so they were kind of already living just on their own. A few people fished for them, but that was it. And then all of a sudden, when we did start looking, it's like, oh, we're too late. And like, I just, I don't want red-eye bass to take that same road. And so that's part of the reason why all this is just such a passion for me is to, you know, make sure that doesn't happen. I think that's a good, good closing note right there from the heart. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, feel free to share the podcast with your friends and your fishing partners. Subscribe or follow. So you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. If you find value in this podcast, uh, and, and you enjoy the work that we're trying to get done here and you want to give back, you want to help out, drop by the Southeastern Fly Store and just simply make a purchase. That'll help. So our guest today is an angler and an author of the book Fly Fishing for Red-Eye Bass, an adventure across southern waters. He is the vice chair of the for the Data Fish Coalition. He's got a PhD in microbiogenetics at Auburn University. I hope I said that right. I think I was close, if nothing else. Uh, (laughs) Matthew Lewis, appreciate you stopping by, man. Good job. No, thanks for having me. I I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, yeah. This was this is a good topic, one that I didn't know anything about, and it's it's super interesting. Got a lot of things that uh, that kind of mirror Brookies, and and I guess I had to thank Trevor as well for for saying, hey, you need to you need to contact Matthew and and get him on the show so we can learn a bit more about it. So. You just listed Chasing the Mobile Basin Slam with Matthew Lewis on Southeastern Fly. See you next time.